Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to a special show on the EU referendum. Sadly, Mr Speaker, I have known a number of couples who've begun divorce proceedings, but I do not know of any who've begun divorce proceedings in order to renew their marriage vows. If we vote to stay, we're not settling for the status quo. We're voting to be a hostage, locked in the boot of a car, driven by others to a place and at a pace that we have no control over. It's been an increasingly fractious campaign, and today we're cutting through all the sound and fury to examine the potential economic and political fallout from next week's crucial vote. It seems to me very clear that the economy will be hurt in the short term and almost certainly in the long term too. You think about Britain's security, Britain's role in the world. There again, I also think there is no doubt that Britain will have less clout in the world and will be less secure if we leave the European Union. The former EU Commissioner Mario Monti tells us he thinks David Cameron has mishandled the case for Remain. I had suggested to Prime Minister Cameron when I was Prime Minister of Italy, let's raise the flag of the single market again and you will find many allies in Europe. And you think he failed to do that? I think he failed to even try to do that. We'll also be finding out why most Swiss people are confirmed Brexiteers and our Deputy Arts and Books editor Lane Green runs the rule over the language of Brexit or Browstrit. But first we know that the poll should never be taken as gospel but it does seem that the vote is going to be a very close-run thing. For Remain, it's been all about the economy, with dire warnings of everything from recession and mass unemployment to raids on our pension pots if we leave the EU. Leave accuse them of blatant scaremongering and insist that Brexit will be good for all of us. Well, to delve into that, I'm joined by Zanny Minton-Beddows, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief, and Jeremy Cliff, our Badget columnist. Zanny, starting with you, Remain have been wheeling out the big guns on the economy, but many people also turn to The Economist to find out what they think is likely to be the economic impact. So is that where you decided to pitch your tent as editor when you entered this debate? Well, we decided to make our point of view very clear early on. We came out just as the campaign started, very strongly on the cover. We said Brexit, bad for Britain, Europe and the West. We left no uncertainty about where we stood. And that was actually interesting. It was one of our best-selling covers. And I think it was best-selling not just because of the stance, but then because we took a very fact-based, dispassionate approach to the whole referendum. And through the last weeks, what we've done is every week we've had a Brexit brief And in those briefs, we've been going through the issues, I think in a fairly, I like to think, in a fairly uh, analytical, coolly analytical way, laying out the arguments and essentially making the case. And I think that's why people turn to us. People have no doubt where we lie. As a liberal internationalist newspaper, it seems to me it's very clear where we should stand. We're very firmly in the Remain camp, but I'm hoping that we are not emotionally in the Remain camp. We are laying out the facts, and they seem to me to point very clearly in one direction. And if I were to challenge you on that, I might say, well, you could have laid out the facts, you could have done the dispassionate analysis uh, and those discrete themed subjects, and then you could have come to a view at the end, as some other titles are doing. So what's distinctive about the way that you and your editorship decided to go at this by saying, actually, we do know where we stand from the outset? Because, Anne, we are a newspaper that knows where it stands. We're a liberal newspaper, we have a clear point of view, and it seemed to me very clear that in this debate, it was not a question that we wouldn't make up our mind until the end. It was very clear early on what we thought was in Britain's interest. And so we said that very early on. 
A lot of big guns, Jeremy, have been wheeled out here, some arguably even as big as The Economist, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, many others who've intervened in this debate. And yet the arguments don't seem to wash with an awful lot of people and not just those who you might have thought were the very committed Eurosceptics to start with. What's gone wrong? Well, do they wash or don't they? There was a lot of commentary after Barack Obama came to Britain and delivered a very resonant pro-Remain argument that it didn't have an effect on the polls. They didn't suddenly leap in one direction, as one might expect. But to quote that politician's cliche, the only poll that matters is the poll on the day. And I wonder how many people standing in the polling booth who might have said, I'm going to vote to leave, will just hear those words resonating and just think it's not worth the risk. I hope you're right, Jeremy. But I do think that Anne points to something that is actually a, a, a something that is not just the case in Britain, but is more broadly right now, which is as part of this mood of anger against the establishment, the backlash against the elite, if you will, and you've written about it a lot, Jeremy, there is, I think, a sense in which some people are beginning to think that if somebody from the establishment or if an establishment voice says something, even if it is laying out facts, it is sort of by definition wrong. And I think that is a very, very dangerous place to be. And we are inching into that world. And we see it with the Trump debate in the US. We see it here in the Brexit debate, that you can't Facts are no longer facts. Facts are discredited if they come from the IMF or if they come from the, you know, any establishment place. And I think that is a real problem in this. It will be, as Annie says, a very interesting measure of the extent to which voters have lost faith in elites. And I, I would be a little bit cautious. I mean, we'll see what's going to happen. I'd be a bit cautious. It's true that the, the Leave campaign is driven by an intense suspicion, dislike of elites. I was at one Leave event uh, in the Midlands recently when they even advised, you know, a, a very established politician advised voters to go into the polling booth with a pen because they could rub out your pencil. Um, so there's just there's a, a real suspicion that the establishment is against the man in the street. But, you know, Britain is a country that when faced with a choice between an imperfect status quo and a leap into the dark, very rarely chooses the latter. Now, that may be all about to change. But as angry as people are and as disillusioned as they feel, we're yet to see a real choice for that leap into the dark. I agree with you, Jeremy. And I think that I hope I'm less confident about it than I was. But I do hope that in the end, the innate conservatism with a small c of the British people will come out and they will not choose the leap in the dark. But I do think that this situation we find ourselves in has something to do with the way that the government in particular has run this campaign and even long before that. This is, to me, evidence that if you scapegoat the European Union for long enough and you pin all of your problems on them and you blame them for everything, then, of course, the British people or a large fraction of them are going to start equating the EU with everything that is bad. And also, if you are the prime minister and you say for months and months and months, if I don't get what I want in this renegotiation, then we have to really rethink things. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. It is very hard to credibly then say that your pensions, the National Health Service, the country's future will be wrecked if we leave. And I do think that, unfortunately, the government is less credible in its arguments now than it would be if it hadn't made all of that stuff before. I'm going to put Zanny Mittenbedders on the spot now and, and, and send her out metaphorically to campaign in the country. If we were to give you, know, you three big hits that you had to give to the voters from the economist point of view about what they should consider in this final week that you think would be put at risk or would be bad were they to vote for Brexit, where would you go? I think that every voter needs to consider what will happen to the country across a broad gamut of areas. And I think it is far too simplistic to think of only one. So you need to think about the economy. It seems to me very clear that the economy will be hurt in the short term and almost certainly in the long term too. 
You think about Britain's security, Britain's role in the world. There again, I also think that it is, there is no doubt that Britain will have less clout in the world and will be less secure if we leave the European Union. European Union itself will be weaker. That affects us. One thing we can't change by this vote is our geography. And a weaker Europe means a weaker Britain. There is one area where I think that the Brexit campaigners have a very valid point, which is the point about immigration. I happen to think that immigration helps this country, and I think the evidence suggests it. But if you are someone for whom that is the only issue, and you are prepared to pay a price in terms of a weaker economy, a less powerful Britain, a less secure Britain, in order to have some greater control over the borders, then I think you... That is the one argument where I can say, OK, it's worth it's worth going out. But personally, I think that would be the wrong choice for Britain, for Europe and for the West. Number one, I just want to pick you up on briefly before I throw back to, to Jeremy, which is, well, hang on. We're going to hear from someone on the show from the Leave campaign who's been a successful conservative businessman who says, I'll be fine. People like me who want to do business can thrive whether or not we are in the EU. And yet you cited the economy first on your pecking order because I think that view is extremely misguided. And the reason I think that, there is theoretically a liberal case for leaving that you hear from those kind of business. We can get rid of regulations. We can trade with anybody. We will be a liberal nirvana. Unfortunately, while I think that is possible in some theoretical world, it is not what is going to happen. Because the reason people will leave, if they leave, is because of the immigration vote and they want to control immigration. It is, it is a push to put up barriers that will take us outside the EU. So the liberal nirvana will never happen. In, incidentally, it's interesting that although the, many of the leaders of the Leave campaign would like to see Britain turned into a sort of Singapore on Thames outside the EU, that's not the message they are selling to their voters. They are seeking a mandate for or a, to characterise it perhaps a bit uh, simplistically, a return to the 1950s, a more closed Britain, a more homogenous Britain, a more isolated Britain. So they can't turn around on the, June the 24th and say, you've just voted for Brexit, now it's a mandate to uh, slash regulation, cut taxes, bring in hundreds of thousands of, of bright Chinese uh, scientists. Um, it's going to be a mandate to shut the door. Do you know, this is one thing, and to, to end on perhaps, it is striking to me that the one big divide in this debate is the generational divide. The people who want to stay in are the young. The people who will be living in Britain tomorrow are basically the people who want to stay in. The people who want to take the leap in the dark and leave are, are disproportionately older people. They've still got the right to vote in the referendum. They've absolutely got the right to vote, but it shows to me where the direction of the country is going. And if you look at the people who are going to be living in the country in the future, those are the people who want to stay in. It's been a particularly ferocious campaign and a lot of so-called blue-on-blue action, which uh, freely translated means Conservatives knocking lumps out of each other, as well as a bit of red-on-red and some fishes in the Labour Party. Uh, Jeremy, whichever way the vote goes, it's going to change the political landscape. Which In which direction? I don't see the Labour Party suddenly soaring to prominence, soaring to an election victory anytime soon, whatever happens in the Conservative Party. Jeremy Corbyn is just too unelectable. The Conservative Party could tear themselves apart before, uh, without the electorate deciding Jeremy Corbyn is the right Prime Minister. However, it is going to be ugly almost whatever happens. I think if there's a vote for Brexit, David Cameron will have to go. And even if there's a vote to remain, especially if it's quite a narrow one, many in his party will not consider the question resolved and it will make it very hard for him to get done what he wants to do in his final years as Prime Minister. Jeremy Cliff, Zanny Minton-Beddows, thank you both very much.
Now, for a European perspective on all of this, we've brought together a panel of continental experts. Mario Monti is a former EU commissioner and prime minister of Italy. Agata Gostinska-Jabowska is a Polish research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. They're both with me here in London. And down the line from Zurich is Alan Cassidy from the Swiss national newspaper Tagesanzeiger. Mario Monti, there is a bit of a kind of pro-Brexit mood in parts of the country. What do you make of that as a former EU commissioner, as someone who's worked hard at the heart of institutional Europe? What do you think has gone wrong? Well, many things have gone wrong with uh, Europe, of course, such a difficult and historic enterprise. I believe that in the last few years, many things went wrong, in particular as the nature of uh, domestic politics in most of our countries uh, changed and this shortening of the horizon with which the politicians uh, take the decisions, their narrow-mindedness, not because they are less valuable than their predecessors, but because the evolution of the system brings them to uh, care almost exclusively about the next election if not about the next opinion poll next week. So how can we pretend that uh, sensible, historic, uh, wise decisions are made uh, uh, coming out of that uh, uh, mind box? I say this with all respect. Alan Cassidy in Switzerland, where do your Swiss readers and indeed others in Switzerland stand on this? Are they more than just halfway interested observers? They are, yes. The Swiss are following the debates in Britain very closely. There's a lot of sympathy for Brexit and, and not just among your um, average right-wing populists. There's, I mean, the government and the economy are obviously very worried, but if you talk to MPs, if you, if you go to debates, you'll find people from, from almost every party who will tell you that Brexit will bring fresh opportunities for Switzerland and Europe and that generally it could be a good thing. There's a lovely verbal coinage that you've reported on, which is Britzerland, which is an idea that Switzerland and the British would have a particularly close relationship in the event of Brexit. How do you see that working, Alan? I think there are two reasons for, for, for that. I mean, there's several, several dimensions. You've got a psychological level, sort of, where, I mean, Switzerland has always felt close to Britain in its slightly detached view of Europe. I mean, the country is obviously in the heart of Europe geographically, but it's never really felt that way politically. When the Swiss talk about the EU, it's it's never the peace project that they see. They see they, they don't see the general idea of a united Europe. They see a gigantic supermarket for their companies to do business in. And I think in that sense, they're, they're quite similar to, 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 to how people in Switzerland, in Britain, excuse me, think of the EU. And I think if, if the British want to leave the EU, then there's simply a lot of sympathy for that because as a political institution, the EU in Switzerland remains uh, well deeply unpopular, really, and has been for, for, for a number of years. Mario Monti, you know that the dark magic of the EU and how negotiation happens in practice, it sometimes is a bit different from the flag-waving in advance. So is it clear to you that Britain couldn't remain in the single market if it left the EU, or do you think there is potential there for some sort of rapprochement? This is, I'm afraid, the big uh, illusion that the UK has, namely uh, to be able to take uh, the best of both worlds. 
And it's a real paradox because if we look at the single market uh, in Europe, uh, and I've been in charge of the single market for a number of years in the European Commission, it's essentially a British product and a British conservative product because it was Margaret Thatcher, it was Lord Caulfield who put in place the single market and uh, the... Uh, the Brits would have, I'm afraid, uh, to uh, give up much of the single European market for the export of their goods and services. And uh, also, I had suggested to Prime Minister Cameron when I was Prime Minister of Italy, let's raise the flag of the single market again and you will find many allies in Europe. And you think he failed to do that? I think he failed to even try to do that. Let me bring Agatha in on this. When you look at Brexit or possible Brexit from the position of Poland today, very changeable situation in Polish politics, could, could you sort of decode the relationship, if you like, between what's happening in Poland and what you're seeing here? Certainly, as you know, the Polish government, it sees definitely London rather than Berlin, you know, as its major ally. And there are similarities when it comes to official sort of vision for the European integration. Uh, Poland, under the previous government, um, was seen as a much more pro-European member state. Um, this government, shares many of the um, conservatives' ideas, um, doesn't really uh, want any further political integration, uh, it doesn't uh, like the notion of ever closer union, and it seems to me doesn't intend to bring Poland onto the Eurozone in the nearest future. So were there Brexit, it would be much more difficult for this government to spread its vision for Europe. Alan, in Zurich, give us, if you could, a, a flavour of how realistic you think it would be for Britain to follow the Britsland model. Do you think that in the end, if that's the way it turned out, it would be very nice in one sense that the two countries uh, might end up with more of an affinity and a closeness. Do you think it would work for us? Well, I have, I have serious doubts. Um, Switzerland has more than 150 bilateral agreements with the EU. And uh, it's done very well, very well with these um, agreements. But but you have to see that it's taken them two decades to negotiate them. It's all very complex. So even if the EU did agree to do something similar with the UK, I can't see how it could be done in just a couple of years' time. Agatha. Yeah, just wanted to add that the Article 50, which would set sort of legal path for, you know, divorce between the EU and, um, and in this case, Britain, I mean, puts the departing member state as a, uh, at a disadvantage. You know, you have a limited timetable to negotiate all the withdrawal terms, which is not easy. I mean, you would have two years to negotiate, you know, what would change, what would end, what could eventually remain broadly the same. And I guess guess that these would be other member states, not Britain, that would have an upper hand and may actually play also hardball with uh, with Britain. So before we actually get to all those trade agreements that Britain would have to negotiate, we would also have to settle, you know, the divorce. But even in the event of Remain, the EU is facing serious challenges to its future, not least the Eurozone, but also the challenges of migration and popular response to that. So, Mario Monti, don't the sceptics have a point that the EU that is portrayed as this great place of, sort of opportunity, cohesion and harmony is in fact becoming a much more fractious entity and wanting out of it might not be that daft? It is becoming a more fractious entity, no doubt. 
but uh, if one looks uh, uh, in a cool way to the figures, then one doubts that there is a concrete UK interest in uh, parting from that. Uh, for example, in no year or quarter ever has EU net migration to the UK exceeded non-EU. So um, many of the problems would still be there. But it is true that uh, uh, the destructive effect, uh, uh, I believe unintended, I hope unintended, of the UK living on the rest of the EU can be major. And many, many more countries will be asking their EU partners, if the, uh, even if the UK stays, uh, to uh, review the conditions at which uh, Hungary, maybe Italy one day and others do stay. So it's, uh, it's a, it might be a beginning of an unraveling. So there are uh, zero-sum games, there are positive-sum games. This is for sure a hugely negative-sum game. Mario Monti. Agata Gostinska, Jakubowska and Alan Cassidy, thank you all. Well, let's take a look at the closing arguments as we go towards the final week before the referendum. I'm joined now by the Labour MP Stephen Kinnock, who is a prominent campaigner for Remain, and for Leave by the Conservative MP Nadim Zahawi. Nadim, starting with you, one central plank of your economic argument is that the UK outside the EU would be able to renegotiate trade deals with the EU, with the rest of the world. What makes you so sure that this would be possible, let alone beneficial? Well, historically, the EU has sought to complete trade agreements with the USA, which we've heard a lot about, Japan, ASEAN, India and Mercosur. Now, Mercosur started in 1999, um, India 2007, and of course US in 2013. None of them have been completed. The reason being is 28 countries with different positions, in some instances having to compete. So France didn't like the Mercosur deal over farming. Spain said that's wrong. No deals have been done. I think the UK can come out and cut deals a lot faster. We're the fifth largest economy in the world. We can do this. Stephen Kinnock, is that right? Well, I think with trade deals, it's about quality and quantity. And you may well be able to do lots of quick and dirty deals, but you'll get a pretty bad deal because you're 60 million consumers versus the much more impressive weight of a 500 million consumer block doing those deals. The EU has, I think, 54 uh, trade deals with third countries all, all over the world, uh, most of the, the big and successful economies. And some of them have taken a, a long time. But if you look at the one, for example, with South Korea, that was done and dusted um, in about two years and, and was a very good deal for the EU. I, I think the other thing that we've got to uh, bear in mind here is that uh, the United Kingdom hasn't actually negotiated a trade deal with a third country uh, since we joined the EU in the 1970s. And um, I, I think that there's a real concern around our ability and capability. We're going to have to build up, if we were to vote to leave, we'd actually have to build up the technical know-how and capability from zero to start doing those deals in the, the context of a toxic political environment whilst, with, with turbulence in the Conservative Party, whilst trying to 
unravel a 43-year relationship in terms of the single market. So the idea that we'd be able to come out of this and negotiate a lot of sweet deals with third countries, I'm, frankly, it's just for the birds. We have a, a lot of readers who are interested in the impact on the economy, but also on the practicalities of doing business. Now, Nadim, in your case, you've been involved in a company which you helped take into Europe. That's YouGov, the polling company that you worked for. The EU seemed to work fine for you to do that. So what is the problem here for business? Great question. Um, so I took YouGov into Germany, into most Scandinavian countries, and since my departure, um, my uh, the leadership team have taken it into France and other countries. Now, the point here is 80% of our economy, of our output, is services. And as I discovered in Germany and other places... There is no single market in services. So all the scaremongering that the economy is going to collapse, your readers are worried about project fear, it cannot be true. Actually, when you look at things like financial services where passporting, which is, of course, a really important part of what our uh, banking system is able to do across the EU because of the EU's passporting system, that's all up in the air uh, if we leave. Uh, and there is a big opportunity around um, creating a single market for digital services where the UK is a real uh, international leader and a huge opportunity with accessing that 500 million consumers. So there's there's work to do on services, but also the idea that just um, destroying our manufacturing sector where, you know, we'd be putting tariffs on cars and every tonne of steel as a guy that represents a steel industry, uh, a steel constituency, pretty much every job in the constituency depends on it. I'm That for me, that's just not worth a price worth paying. I mean, I'm, I don't really think it's right to talk about destroying our manufacturing sector as a risk that's worth taking. Whatever happens next week, this has been a very fiercely fought campaign. It's exposed some deep splits in both the Conservative and Labour parties. Nadim, to, to you first, previously a loyalist to David Cameron, until you went rogue and went off with Remain. So isn't that a sign that there's going to be a lot of stitching together to be done and it might be very fractious and difficult indeed for the Conservatives first? Well, I don't think uh, I went rogue. My Prime Minister promised a referendum. He delivered it. He actually promised that all members of the party, including the Cabinet, can campaign on either side, and I admire him for doing that. He will be our leader, and the Prime Minister, after the 23rd of June, on the 24th, will wake up with the same Prime Minister and the man who will take us forward. I think but but just it, could well, uh, it could well affect how long he sticks around. Come on. I don't believe that. You, know, you can't have a strategy without knowing how many people are coming into your country and being able to take back control. You can't actually be good to your community and be progressive if you can't help them. Those who are the most vulnerable on low pay when they are actually... It wasn't what the question was about. It was about how long David Cameron was going to hang around in I'm, the event of a tight vote. I'm going to come back to that. So so my the reason I chose to be on the Vote Leave campaign is I think... The arguments are on our side. I think we will win this and David will have a mandate to go back to Brussels and negotiate uh, our exit. Now, nothing will change on the 24th of June. We'll still be trading. You know, the, the, idea the Prime Minister that the would have been day, on the wrong side and but, that seems but, unusual but, but, for him to stay in office. He, the, the reason he delivered a referendum is because this is a tough question and he wanted the country to have a say. There's nothing wrong with that. He will still be our Prime Minister. He will go back to For Brussels. how long? For as long as he wants to be Prime Minister. 
optimistic assessment there. Stephen Kinnock, let's let's put you onto the Labour case. There's been a lot of worry from Labour campaigners saying that Labour people in the country they may be expected to fall in behind Remain aren't doing so. Is there a problem here and is it to do with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the party? I think that it's no secret that Jeremy has a long history of Euro scepticism, but I genuinely believe that he changed his view. My favourite quote on this is John Maynard Keynes. When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? So I think there is a commitment from the leadership to the cause. I would like to see them out there doing more. I think it's no secret that it we could have done more. We could have been more visible. I think we should be treating this campaign now like the short campaign in a general election where you have the leader and the, uh, the shadow cabinet out and about uh, making the case. So sure, I, I recognise that there are some concerns there. But I do also think that as we get closer to the, the um, polling day, uh, our people will look inside themselves and think about their values and think about what it means to be British and what it means to be Labour and the values of cooperation and partnership and solidarity and the view that we, we, do, we achieve more through common endeavour than we do on our own. And I think in the end that is what will tip them into voting the right way on the 23rd. Stephen Kinnock and Nadim Zahawi, thank you both very much. Now, the campaign may have been a particularly bruising one for those on the inside, but it's made for a great spectator sport for impartial observers and journalists like us. Our budget columnist Jeremy Cliff has witnessed many of the campaign's fiercest and occasionally comic encounters, and he's here to give us his personal reflections on a quite extraordinary campaign. Jeremy, your key moments. Well, I'd have to start with the recent television debate in which we had three campaigners from the Remain side and three from the Leave side. And the most remarkable thing there in front of the nation was to see Boris Johnson and Amber Rudd, um, two very senior Conservatives, uh, both sort of identified with the modernising wing of the party, going at each other, hammer and tongs. And we have had nothing of evidence here of what the Vote Leave campaign are proposing. And from Boris, well, he's the life and soul of the party, but he's not the man you want driving you home at the end of the evening. Amber Rudd in particular laid into Boris Johnson not just for his views on Europe, but she questioned his judgment. She said he isn't the sort of man you'd want driving you home at the end of the night. You know, very personal stuff. What do you make of that? Because you might say, well, what do you expect? David Cameron did say you're free to go off and campaign as you wish. Do you think that's just sound and fury? Or do you think it really will have an impact on Conservative politics as we go forward? I think it matters. You know, you look back three months or so ago, four months ago, a lot of people were saying this will be quite a civilised debate. And when Boris Johnson came out for Brexit, remember he said that he wouldn't be going up against any other Conservatives. Well, so much for that. And the fact that Amber Rudd, who is very close to David Cameron and in particular George Osborne, went for him like that, suggests that she had licence to do so from the top. And it's just a measure of how vitriolic this campaign has become. You talk about vitriol, but what about passion? And I'm particularly interested, as you've got around the country a lot, how passionate have you found the engagement? And has it always been in the places that you expected? There's definitely an asymmetry. I've been to a number of uh, campaign events for the Leave side recently. And just the the, the the sheer passion, the sheer enthusiasm on the part of those campaigners. You know, these are people for whom it's not just a case of are we going to be £10 a month better off or £50 worse, um, but it's about national destiny. It's about the character of the country we live in. It's about, in their words, getting our country back. And I contrast that with an earlier campaign event I visited in York at the university with Will Straw, the leader of the uh, Remain campaign, where a group of, a fairly small group of quite politically active students sat around and complained that virtually none of 
their colleagues were interested or engaged. Now, admittedly, that was a couple of months ago, but that does speak to a, a general trend throughout this campaign, which is that young people, who should be the real base, the real fun foundation of the Remain vote, don't seem to have engaged to the extent that they should for Remain to win confidently. And what about Labour? Because there's been this funny twist in the Labour story that the party is led from the left by someone who has a rather Eurosceptic past but has had to turn on a sixpence or whatever the new money is in the EU referendum and say that he will embrace Remain. Is that working out? No, in short. The evidence suggests that the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's heart is clearly not in the Remain campaign is having an impact out in the country. Barely more than half of Labour voters say they will vote. Barely more than half even know that Labour is for Remain. There was a little factoid from a focus group that leaked rather conveniently out of the in campaign, which said that a group of working class women in Liverpool, classic Labour voters who really should be on the Remain side for Remain to win, didn't even know that Labour was for Remain. In fact, the majority thought it was for Leave. And I think that speaks to the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is not entirely convinced of the merits of the EU. And in any case has not thrown himself into the the Remain campaign to the extent that he needs to. Jeremy Cliff, thank you very much. Now that's just about it from this special EU referendum show. But before we go... The Brexit economist... Declaring that when Brexit is secured, Brexit will not affect Greater Manchester's if vision. If there is and Brexit, then the rest will vote for tariffs. the minister last night at the world premiere of Brexit the movie. <laughs> <laughs> The word that's been on everyone's lips for the past few months. It's a good word, and it sounds so much sexier than bromain. Our Deputy Arts and Books Editor Lane Green is an expert on the language of politics and the author of a book on language, You Are What You Speak. So we asked him to run the rule over Brexit and the words that have shaped this referendum here and abroad. Brexit makes almost a perfect portmanteau. It's short. It combines the elements of the words neatly. It's not one of those fake portmanteaus that kind of never quite takes off, like Belfie for a butt selfie or Felfie for a farmer selfie that no one ever uses. It is rocketed around Europe, so it's not only in the constant conversation here in Britain, but it's also been uh, taken into other languages. Uh, it's used in Spanish and French and German newspapers almost as much as it is here in the British papers, and it's usually used without any explanations. Everyone knows what you're talking about when you talk about Brexit. Germans coined uh, alternatives like Braustritt, which is Britain plus Austritt, which means exit in German. They were only doing so in jest. The English words are so common and so popular in the foreign press now even in Germany, even in France, in places with very strong literature and journalistic traditions of their own. Brexit, das klingt schon wie so ein Katzenfutter vom Lidl. Ja, wirklich. You see Brexit at least 20 times more often in the press than you see Remain. Psychologists will tell you that if you want to avoid someone thinking about something, you don't say the word over and over again, even when you're negating it, even when you say we're against Brexit or we want no Brexit, you're still constantly saying Brexit and reinforcing the idea in people's minds. So the lack of a really compelling alternative, the, the Remain word that's not really out there, uh, is probably a, a subtle disadvantage for the Remain campaign. If we choose Brexit rather than Remain, uh, there will be no readmission. The official leave campaign is called leave. It's got a sort of action-packed verb in the word leave. You get up and go somewhere. 
The word remain, by contrast, is, is two syllables, not one. It's a little longer. It's from Middle French, and so it's a European word, and it feels like that in English. And to remain is kind of passive. Uh, so remain is not a great word. I think if I had been the one to assign a verb to the other campaign, it would have been stay. Stay is a more active word. It's shorter. It's actually also from Middle French, but it has a little bit more of a we shall stay and fight them on the beaches, Churchillian kind of feel to it, whereas uh, remain feels kind of like you're being left behind or something like that. So stay is a verb that I would have chosen if I were going to, uh, to put something on the campaign. Some of the stickers I've seen around town say, I'm in, and that's at least a nice pithy slogan to say, I'm on the remain side. I'm in. That sort of a, uh, implies teamwork. It implies I'm going to stick around and fight. I'm going to stay and do my job. Um, and as far as slogans go, that's about the best that the remain campaign has come up with. Lane Green on Brexit, Remain and Browstrit, the words that have shaped this referendum. And that's all from us this time. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. You can follow our coverage as we head towards that all-important referendum at economist.com. And whatever happens, I'm back in this chair next week for another special programme on the day the results come out. Goodbye. Goodbye.